welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as what didn't, and we talk about it all. In this episode, we are going to discuss economics in in, in character economics in third edition D and D, and we'll see if we get to any later edition, but. <laughs> Friends, I have enough books open in front of me that no, yeah, it's not our, our track record. Our track record is not good in terms of getting through an episode uh, and covering a, a vast number of of editions. Do you remember when we used to cover a topic in uh, just two episodes? Yeah, I I don't know what happened to that. Well, that, that was a different time. The, the twelve days of edition wars happened. Yes. <laughs> That was yes, that's true. That is exactly what happened. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> um, so third edition. So we ended the last episode uh, when we finished second edition. And so here's a question for you. Before we delve into anything uh, with the the books spread out in front of you, what do you think the biggest difference is? between character economics in second edition and third edition. Oh, oh no question. It's magic item enchantment. Okay. Like that's not even a conversation. The big difference is magic item enchantment. Um there are some other significant changes, but uh the huge huge change that you're going to see in third and fourth is that gold pieces become a kind of XP track, but they're an XP track that levels up your gear. And nothing is the same uh, between second and third because of that change. And likewise, nothing is the same between third, fourth and fifth because that change gets functionally reverted. Um, mm-hmm. Now there there are DMs in fifth who you know let you buy magic items or whatever, but it isn't a, the default assumption, and I get the strong impression that it's not the common mode of play. I also believe it is a pretty close to universal mode of play in third and fourth, mm-hmm. um, and so what I'm talking about is the fact that uh, there are functionally 10 grades of power for a magic weapon, right? And Mm -hmm. you're going to build it up to wherever you want to be in those 10 grades of power. Same for your armor, if you have armor. Uh, Same for your shield, if you have a shield. Same for your your other items. Like, you kind of decide what you... what, what sort of um... XP track of items you care about and your progression in those is gold pieces. There are other, th- other things you can spend gold pieces on, but that's what the system expects. And if you don't keep up, stuff gets weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are too far ahead, stuff gets weird. Uh, so much more than in second edition or in uh, fifth edition. It's hard for me to say about 
uh, original and first. But um, in third, there's an expected amount of treasure that you will have received at any given point. And there's an expected very, very approximate amount that you'll have spent on something other than uh, ratcheting up your gear and everything else is going to go into uh, giving you more pluses and more shinies in your various item slots. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it was a very successful mode of play in its time. Uh, Mm -hmm. It is a very successful mode of play for people who still like that kind of thing. And certainly uh, Third Ed Ed still has its very strong adherence, um, enough so that it spun off a whole successful game that's now in its second edition. Right? (laughs) Right. Um, And that dynamic of uh, loot improves your gear in a very knowable, concrete way is a very strong like design choice and trying to get around it is going to make weird things happen. Um, mm-hmm. It is so much the center of the economy of third ed though. Um, but it's not, it's not the whole of the deal. And so I do want to go through this in detail, but um, boy, if you're going to crystallize it into one thing, that's the thing. <laughs> I, I I figured you had a, a pretty solid answer for that, uh, which is why I asked. Um, so to set the tone there, I figured I would uh, just just throw it out there and <laughs> let you uh, let you talk about it uh, for a minute. And um, yeah, and it makes sense. Well, so. and, and a huge part of third ed is uh, putting the levers of improving gear into the player's hands, right? Mm-hmm. Um, spellcasters don't have to spend uh, spend feats on magic item creation, but they certainly can, and it mm-hmm. does make a significant difference in a lot of different things in in how the party is going to going to advance. Um, and there's there's a lot of nuanced complexity that comes along there that is honestly still beyond the the scope of you know doing all of third in a single podcast um Mm -hmm. just for one use case of the kind of nuance i'm talking about when you get into um, third edition eberron and you look at artificer class and the way they can create spell scrolls with metamagic that further enhances those spells so that they have a single scroll or a single wand that is their their boss kill, right? Mm-hmm. They, they have made this thing and poured treasure and experience points. I want to be clear about this. You're also putting experience points in uh, into this item, but it gets to combine all of these things, these, these metamagic features and, you know, this spell that the artificer can't normally cast, but use magic device. What do you want? Um, 
into you know a whammy right um, yeah whether it's I, I don't know disintegrate cranked up to uh, practically epic levels or, or whatever right it doesn't matter for the sake of the point what the thing is but from talking to people who are playing artificers at a very high level of system mastery that's the deal yeah yeah uh, that's the whole reason to do it right and and even without getting to that level of sort of system mastery and um, just uh, crawling through the text line by line to understand exactly what you're being sold because that's that's pretty hard to understand like a surface read of the artificer is not going to tell you any of the stuff I just said um, right Right. Even without that, you do have classes like the wizard getting um, bonus spell slots that they can only spend on uh, metamagic or item creation feats. Uh, and so what you're seeing there is the player being presented a choice between the level-over-level long-game economy or the short-term burst power and neither of those is wrong in the in the conceits of of third edition um neither of them is promised to be useful mm-hmm. they might be useful but you really really notice with third edition design from the lofty perspective of 2020 anyway, um, <laughs> how many choices you're asked to make fairly blind on the assumption that you having chosen it, the DM will create room for it. And mm-hmm. uh, my experience leads me to question how accurate that really is at the table. Um, I, I think I've talked about this before, but um, my feet, selection experience in in third ed really really emphasizes buyer's remorse mm-hmm. a sense yeah. that um, I should have picked something else and it's much too late now because there's no respend mechanic right um, anyway um, <laughs> so and that you know that that actually is the uh, frustration of a new, you know, because I, I didn't um, play third edition for the longest time. I didn't play third edition uh, until very late in the cycle. And by the time I had played it, there were so many books out already and there were so many players that were experts. And because third edition rewards system mastery so much, um, it was overwhelming to me and I had the bad habit of, or the, maybe it's not a bad habit. I had the misfortune of not being able to judge feats very well because I had no experience with the game. I did not have the system mastery at first. I, I, I would, I would say I never gained system mastery with third edition because I never played it enough to do so. Yeah. Um, and so it's really difficult to make a character 
uh, in that system because you know I read a lot of third edition books and I I played a little bit um, and I enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong; I'm I'm not bashing the edition, but uh, it had a very different feel to me than other editions I had played thus far at that time because I didn't have the system mastery. And because when I started playing, there was already such a large fan base that did have at least a little bit of system mastery, I felt really behind. And when I would make those blunders of picking a feat that was, you know, really bad idea, um, you know, it was was not a good learning experience. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I feel that. Um, you know, because there's such a sense of uh, expected wealth by level in uh, in third edition, and when I say there's a sense of it, I mean that there's a table for it. Not that mm-hmm. I've somehow imagined this into existence. I mean to say that the game tells you here's how much wealth the PC should have at each level. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that in the DMG. Just Stick with me for a second. Um, but you have uh, things that the players can do that should proactively generate money and as a result uh, let them advance their position relative to the wealth curve in some way. And things get weird if that happens. Um, you know, some of the easy ones aren't going to really blow the curve very much at any level where it matters. Um, I'm thinking of like using perform to bring in money guys. It's fine. You're talking about pocket change here Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to really blow the curve. You need to start messing around with uh, magic item creation and then selling the magic item at something that is a profit relative to gold. You probably don't care about the fairly small amount of XP that that is getting siphoned off with each item you create because depending on how the GM runs things, you might be looking at uh, more positively getting ahead of the uh, wealth per XP curve. Um, Unless your GM is going to you know, run adventures intended for eighth level characters, even though you're seventh level or lower, <laughs> having um, having made magic items or even died at some point mm-hmm. and uh, lost a level. Maybe you lost a level to uh, level draining undead. Whatever. It, it, unless the GM has a a world power advancement schedule that you're responsible for keeping up with. And if you fall behind, then you're just in a death spiral. Then like being a level behind, isn't so bad. You'll get more experience points from the same adventure. If you can just get your, your allies to carry you for that one adventure so that you'll make up the difference. Um, And this sounds like I'm really, really in the weeds from talking about the economy, it's just that circling back to what I said at the top of the episode, in in third ed, gold is an, is a variant XP bar for your items. Um, 
And that's going to get sort of changed around and undermined with a book like Weapon of Legacy, uh, Weapons of Legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the main of play, uh, you know, gold and XP aren't transparent with each other. They're parallel tracks. Right. And uh, you are better off with gold ahead of XP than you are with XP ahead of gold. And that might be weird all by itself. It might be weird to say, uh, oh, well, we kind of have too much XP and we'd be better we off if we had more gold instead. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. That, yeah. that sort of is undermining the the core promise of what an experience point is in in D anD D, but which, when it's, if you're a new listener, we talked about in episodes eight and nine. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I don't know. Um, no, I get where you're going. That um, the the fact that they are a sort of parallel tracks and they don't necessarily how do I say this they don't necessarily match and depending on what the needs of of the party and the campaign are yeah you might end up with more XP and you might think wow we need to go adventuring just for some gold or we need to do something to get gold right and and because, because of that it's okay to actually expend some XP to create right magic item. And uh, it's especially noticeable if your GM runs published content that doesn't ever talk about um, you know measured against, measuring its party wealth. It only says this adventure is suitable for you know uh, four to six PCs of blah level. Right. right? Uh, if if your DM is going to sort of hold you to that, but you're falling behind on treasure. Well, life is more difficult. Like that's that's just how it do, um, right? And so this sort of proves to be a through line in in third edition, as I keep saying, and um, the the whole like conversion of um, of cash into gear, uh, whether you're doing that through magic item creation feats or through going to a you know magical merchant stall in a market somewhere um, is sort of sort of little column a little column b i, I guess like it it doesn't matter if you spent the feats you've got something more efficient that isn't going to help you in the middle of battle mm-hmm Right, which is the thing you have to survive, or the game's over. Right. Uh, you know, especially in the general mode of published adventures for third ed. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know that the, the meta magic feat is a whole lot like a um, magic item that you don't have to win; you just have. Um, you know, those meta magic feats 
became magic items in the form of the metamagic rods. But I'm digressing pretty pretty heavily here. <laughs> so let's see if I can bring this back around to something about economics at all. Um, I mean, there there are rules for things like building strongholds in Third Ed, but it has totally just been cut as an assumed part of play. It's just it's just completely gone. Um, there's nothing at all about at this level you attract this many followers automatically uh, if you've built a stronghold. What you can do is by the leadership feat, which lets you attract um, henchmen and followers and gives you a leadership score and the whole deal. Um, right. And it's almost as if they, uh, as an afterthought later in the edition, they they wanted to bring bring that back maybe for, for some, some fans who were clamoring for it. So they produced the Stronghold Builder's Guidebook, which I'm currently looking at, and the DMG2. Right, I, I basically agree with that. Yeah, the, the DMG2, which has a section on... Um, let me look, I was just looking at it. Um, the DMG2 has a whole section on um, like the nobles and what it means to be a monarch and you know what is what does a, a courtly manner look like and and you know what does what what makes you eligible to be a part of the court of a of a monarch or of a duke or a lord um, and when would characters attempt to do that or want to do that or become a lord but once again you know that's the DMG two that's Right. later in the edition and the stronghold builders guide it's later in the edition so um yeah so i'm going to the treasure section of uh, the dmg um where you really see a lot of the exact kind of stuff that i'm talking about table three three is about as on the nose as it comes and oh my gosh does this just affect play so much it becomes such uh, a, an integral part of play um, so table three three is treasure values per encounter so this takes the encounter level which is derived from the CRs of all the creatures in the encounter uh, and tells you about how much treasure should get distributed from that encounter you can you know, have one encounter that distributes no treasure as long as you double up in the encounter after it, right? Or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, the, the idea is just that you want to be working with this as your your guideline and not get too far away from it. Uh, and so this starts at, at 300 gold pieces per, for an encounter level one. I mean, 300 gold pieces for just an EL1 is kind of bananas uh, in terms of encounters we've seen anywhere else and uh, scales up to 80,000 gold pieces for encounter level 20. Uh, And, you know, the the text, you know, as you just, as you read through this, um, it sort of takes, it, it takes the tone of, well, on average, here's what should happen, and 
And, you know, so for example, blah, blah, blah. And it's almost like it's trying to be very like, uh, as if it's a guideline, right? Like it's optional. It's an optional guideline. And, you know, as the DM, when you're creating your adventures and you're putting encounters in them, here's a guideline for you to reference, to use, to know, oh, about average, you know, what kind of treasure you should be giving. But really... (laughs) Right. Really, what it should be saying is, if you don't give these characters this amount, they're going to soon start to lag behind, and it will very quickly become noticeable. Right. And one of the things that I need to say about this is that having tables like this in the DMG and not mm, inculcating a sense that the DMG was separate and secret and sort of mm, forbidden knowledge, which mm-hmm. some DMs did in, um, in first ed, as we've talked about. Um, mm-hmm. It meant that at, at tables in my gaming communities, uh, the players had a consciousness of these things and were tracking them and, I mean, I'm talking about people I love to death, but mm-hmm. that is obnoxious as shit. <laughs> it is yeah. it is remarkably corrosive to play if uh, you you look at the results of an encounter and maybe because you're also a DM yourself, you think this encounter was under treasured. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, a part of what all these treasure numbers become is, uh, well, that's what the monsters have to work with as their gear, right? Especially if you have a lot of humanoid opponents, which the third ed games I was in really notably did. There's really a lot of humanoid opponents with class levels. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really big thing. And overall, third ed encouraged that a lot. So, you know, mm-hmm. th- there you go. But that meant that a lot of this treasure is converted into gear and isn't delivered in the form of coinage, uh, which introduces another step in the whole process, right? So, I mean, how many uh, masterwork longswords can you collect? Well, at a certain point, like a masterwork longsword isn't soaking up enough cash from the GM's perspective anymore. And they want to give them like a plus one flaming longsword or whatever. Right. And I mean, from the player's perspective, by that point, that plus one flaming longsword is trash loot. Mm-hmm. Like they they just are going to be looking for a merchant to sell that to. And right. so, like my experience of third ed really involved a lot of like just toss this encounters uh, trash magic items in, in the wagon and we'll keep on carrying them with us till we get to town again and sell all this. <laughs> like right. it, it feels like Diablo or something. Right. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't an accident. You know, the designers are, are smart people. They knew what they were creating and there's nothing wrong with that except that it really, really comes to dominate play. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that 
if that is a thing that you're happy with dominating play, then then and great, like go with my blessings. But it it definitely became too much for me um, over the course of the edition because it is such a repetitive element of of adventuring and um, and play. Well, you know, the same thing happened in fourth edition, right? Where it's a well, sort a of great, great big arms race. Um, but they they built some things into the system to try to ameliorate that. Right. Like most of the humanoids you're fighting don't have recognizable gear that is definitely a particular treasure. Right. Right. The the transparency of NPCs to PCs operating on exactly the same rules is another piece of the puzzle for for third third ed here. Mm-hmm. Um like um the masterwork sword in that NPC's hand uh, is going to be the masterwork sword in your hand after the encounter, and right. that that is it's a fully real object within the game, as opposed to um, the sense in fourth of well, this creature had uh, a sword. Was it loot? Was it worth taking? We don't necessarily find that out until all is said and done. It might not be reflected in its actual game function if the GM right. didn't think about it beforehand. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's how treasure parcels work in Fourth Ed. Right. But the is- but the issue of okay, I found this giant you know, treasure hoard and it's got all this really cool treasure except that would have been cool two levels ago and uh, I'm just going to go sell it now. That existed in spades. Oh, no doubt. In, in no doubt. So, so it still had some of the same outcomes. Uh, but 4th but edition at least tried to tell the DMs not to do that because they were supposed mm-hmm. to be building parcels around what the players said they wanted. Uh, right. Whether that happened is a different matter, but it is in the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, to just talk to the players, ask them what they want, and then place it. And I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but... Well, and later on, they introduced inherent bonuses so that you didn't right. have to rely on a particular magic item to get you up to the level where you were supposed to be. At the level of uh, attack bonus, so, right? Sort of, S- sort of. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so on the very next page of the the third ed DMG, what I want to point you to is the wealth comparisons table, which is um, doing sort of exactly what I was talking about. Uh, sorry, it's not the next page; a couple pages later. It's the it's the downstream effect of table mm-hmm. three three. Um, it's telling you, you know, expected wealth gain, treasure from encounters, and treasure per character um, over the course of a level. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and you know, if you add it all up along with the number of encounters you're expected to undergo for that level, then you you see how much the character is expected to to spend on you know, miscellanea 
um, as opposed to expected to keep for, for gear improvement. Um, and the table is, is very odd looking because of things like uh, rounding after division. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the, the first level treasure from encounters is 3,999 gold pieces. Why that? Well, <laughs> because division, guys. That's why. Um, and, and so on. Like the numbers just are mostly not sort of clean round numbers. And that's maybe a little strange. Um, but this is all in a sidebar that is explaining the whole rationale that is the point of this episode. Um, right. So, so it's talking about... Um, you know, uh, this is intended to uh, generate enough treasure to keep characters abreast of the wealth figures described in Table Five One. So, right, they have a target wealth, and you need to adhere to it, or upon your head be it. <laughs> right, um, mm-hmm. and uh, like when you as you go through these paragraphs, I kind of want to read this. Um, you know, as you can see, rewards using these tables generate more wealth than indicated. We assume characters use up that additional money on expenses such as being raised from the dead, potions, scrolls, ammunition, food, and so forth. Your job is to compare the wealth gained from the encounters in your adventure with the expected wealth gain shown on the table above. If your adventure has more treasure, reduce it. If your adventure has less treasure, plant enough treasure not related to the encounters to match the value. See other treasure below. Your job is also to make sure that wealth gets evenly distributed. The third column on the table above shows that each character should get an equal share of the treasure from the adventure. If a single item, such as a magic staff, makes up most of the treasure, then most of the party earns nothing for their hard work. While you can make it up to them in later adventures, it is best to use the methods described in this chapter to ensure an even distribution of wealth. And then when you go to uh, page 135, that's where table 5-1 is. Thank you very much. It has this to say. It says, One of the ways in which you can maintain measurable control on PC power is by strictly monitoring their wealth, including their magic items. Table 5-1, character wealth by level, is based on average treasures found in average encounters compared with the experience points earned in those encounters. Using that information, you can determine how much wealth a character should have based on her level. The baseline campaign for the D&D game uses this wealth-by-level guideline as a basis for balance in adventures. No adventure meant for 7th-level characters, for example, will require or assume that the party possesses a magic item that costs 20,000 gold pieces. Which, uh, look, I mean, all of this sounds reasonable. Right when you read it like this, it says, "Okay, it's it's you know this is the first really uh, this is the first attempt at a really balanced edition that balanced the care." I'm not saying it succeeded in all ways, but it attempted to balance PC power and keep everyone on a certain trajectory. Right. And give the DM tools to make sure that everyone was on that certain trajectory. Now, they failed in other ways, uh, so it didn't quite <laughs> work out. Um, 
but it's an attempt. And when you read it just on face value, it sounds very reasonable. But here's what I have to say about that. I could say the same thing about feats that I chose as a player with no system mastery yet. Yep. I made bad choices because reading those things sounded freaking reasonable too. <laughs> right? Sure. Um, oh, and Sam, so, did you buy toughness? <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? Like it, it, it reads well and you can tell where they're coming from and what, what the intent is and what, what the expected sort of, way to use this is but the problem is that it starts falling apart in the campaign because of the issues that you've already raised yeah and so like if if that kind of guideline and and such is the kind of fun you want to have then that's great like again it just it just stopped working for me um, mm-hmm. because it made the treasure not feel like treasure it made it feel like um, keeping up with the Joneses where the game is the Joneses um, mm-hmm. if, if you see what I mean yep. um, but um, so I before we sort of move on uh, with that thought, can can yeah. I read the next paragraph of this? By all means. It's it's about players and and players having or PCs having too much power. It's it says power can get out of hand. Power corrupts. PCs may do things that show their arrogance or their contempt for those below them as they advance in power. A 10th level fighter may feel that he no longer has to treat the Duke with respect since he can single-handedly defeat all of the Duke's soldiers. A powerful wizard might feel so unstoppable that she wantonly tosses around fireballs in the middle of town. While it's fine for PCs to enjoy their abilities as they advance in level, and then a parenthetical comment, that's the whole point, which, ding, 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 like here they are telling you what the point of the game is, but we'll get back to that. It says, uh, while they might enjoy, it's fine for them to enjoy their abilities as they advance in level, they shouldn't be allowed to do whatever they wish. Even high-level characters shouldn't run about completely unchecked. Players should always remember one thing. There's always someone more powerful. You should set up your world with the idea that the PCs, while they are special, are not unique. Other characters, many of them quite powerful, have come along before the PCs, and then it it keeps going on. Uh, So two things about that. The first is that parenthetical I mentioned, that that's the whole point for them to enjoy their abilities as they advance in level. That's also a side effect of system mastery, right, is you enjoy what you're doing, you enjoy the power that you've earned, and then you anticipate and look forward to the next set of powers that you get or the increase in power that you get. Uh, Sure. I mean, D&D is power fantasy is not exactly news. Right, right. Um, but I think this might be the first time that I've actually – well, maybe not. But uh, in, in saying that that's the entire point – well, anyway. Um, <laughs> the next thing that players should remember, there's always someone more powerful, and they're special but not unique. And that is, for me um, – one of the things that separates the more modern editions of D&D from the previous editions okay. uh, is the feeling that the PCs are 
good, but they're not they're not unique. There's there's all a ton of other fighters running around. There's a ton of other wizards running around. And if you don't watch out, you're going to run into someone who's more powerful than you because there are just hundreds of thousands of these characters running around. Whereas in in the older editions, at least the feel was, you know, there aren't really that many powerful people running around. I mean, of course, there's nobles and royal people, and they're powerful in terms of social status. But in terms of, you know, really high-level magic users, and I mean, remember the, in the second edition demographics, it said there's one per one million people or something like that, one 18th level character for every, you know, 100,000 or every million or whatever that was, that humongous demographic table. Um, that's very different from what is in third edition. Sure. And it's very different from the feel of like the very old editions, like Basic and 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 OE, where you know the whole point was that your characters are kind of unique. They are the treasure hunters, the only ones that can survive. Because by the time you get a character past third level, it's like holy crap, I've survived a ton of stuff. Yep. It's yep. just a very different feel, and it and it makes the uh, world. It, it makes the. Because remember, we're also talking about the assumed setting, right? Right. And that means this statement just said the assumed setting is, or the assumed setting includes, a ton right. of people with levels. Like you were talking about, the NPCs are all based on PC builds with levels. And there's a lot of them, and they're all very powerful. <laughs> yep. Definitely. Um, and, I mean, that has huge, huge downstream effects on sure. um, just the work their GM has to do to run one evening's adventure. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, more than any other single thing, the thing that forced me to stop running third edition was the amount of work I had to do to write NPCs. Mm-hmm. Um, it just... Because it's such detailed work um, to pick all of their feats and pick all of their skills and so on, um, yeah. and, like, spending all of these skill points, like it's an enormous amount of work. And the system did essentially nothing to simplify it. Um, that's just that's just life in in third ed and. Um, I, I may have talked about this before, but you start to see some especially strange variations on that in um, some of the um, some of the published stuff in um, Dungeon Magazine that, mm-hmm. that Paizo was operating at the time. Um, there's a sense that the adventure writer needs to power a game the CR budget of an encounter so that they are generating as much challenge as possible per EL so that you're having to fight as hard as possible for that goal. Right. Right? Um, and, And that's just a weird idea. It's a weird idea. But it's the precursor to the set piece encounter. Sure. Right? Sure. The set piece encounter design that they used in fourth edition—that's the precursor to that. It's the, it's the, uh, the 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 end point of the evolution of that style. That yeah. every 
encounter should be a challenge. And the difference is in fourth edition, it was easy to set up that encounter challenge. In third edition, it was very difficult at higher levels because the PCs just had so much. Yeah. Uh, and the kind of power gaming I'm talking about is uh, tacking on one level of warrior to uh, the rest of an NPC mm-hmm. build because that's a way to get a few more hit points and another point of base stack bonus. Right. in exchange for no CR increase. Like, right. what's happening right here? You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. To, to touch on another point that is going to, uh, I think, come up in some, uh, as you go through other books, uh, there's Table 5-2, Random Town Generation. And this is the economy side of game economy because uh, it's talking about the different kinds of settlements that players are going to come across and the gold piece limit that those markets are going to have to buy crap off the PCs. Right. And that is expanded on in the city builder web enhancement that they released shortly after they released the DMG. And then they wrote a whole book about it, or at least a book that included a whole expanded chapter about it, which was cityscape, which has a similar sort of, um, town generation motif to it, but it goes into much more detail about how you determine the GP limit and whether it's a, a, if you want to split that into districts of your town and whether or not the district is a a upper class a middle class or lower class sort of in, in terms of social rank or caste. Um, And that changes the GP limits in terms of mercantile actions that are happening in that area or versus in the entire city. So it's a fascinating look at how a city can work and how you can try to use some really good guidelines to sort of make things work. If you are also having in your mind that, well, here's these this players or here's these PCs and they need to have this certain level of power available to them or the certain level of item available to them and I need them to be visiting cities and I need to know where whether these cities or hamlets or villages or whatever it is has something they could beg, borrow, or steal um, or buy uh, that would greatly change that power balance, right? Yep. So... If you if you're if you're a city building geek like I am, uh, it, th- these are fascinating sections. Um, the amazing thing is, I feel like they don't go into as much uh, in terms of uh, the cost of things and how to actually build a city and what's sort of what, what's the baseline that a city needs to run well and how much does that cost and how many citizens do you need for that to work in a, in a very basic economy or let's talk about other economies. Is it a barter economy or is it, you know, things like that. Um, it doesn't really go into those things very much. And I feel like, you know, that when, like when we talked about basic and uh, with the companion set where it talked about building your stronghold, it actually talked about that type of thing too. It talked about what you needed to do to maintain everything. And this doesn't really do that. Cityscape might. I, I'll have to flip that book open and look at it uh, for a minute. But in 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 this book, the Dungeon Master's Guide, it doesn't really go that much in depth for that. Right. 
Um, so I think the last thing I really think we ought to cover in any level of depth in the DMG is just a quick overview of that, uh, that magic item progression with gold piece cost, that, that whole situation. Um, and so this is, this is just all these magic items and, um, they've got their, uh, base cost, um, advancement schemes mm -hmm. that, that vary by type of item. Um, so, um, Armor and shields uh, advance at 1,000, 4,000, 9,000, 16,000. Um, if those sound like, you know, um, uh, squares times a thousand, mm -hmm. times 1, then congratulations, you took a little bit of math. Um, <laughs> and then you see the same thing, but also times two for weapons. So, um, uh, uh, right, 2,000, 8,000, 18,000, 32,000, 50,000, 72,000, 98,000, 128,000, 162,000, 200,000. I mean, it, these are all sort of getting compared against the expected wealth tables. And then you've got to understand that customizing your magic items to do the right thing for the rest of what you've got going on is just another area of system mastery. And mm -hmm. I think I've talked about this before when we were talking about weapon specialization in um, uh, the 12 Days of Edition Wars, but it creates a situation where uh, if you've poured a bunch of money into making your magic weapon really cool, like, let's say you received it as loot when it was a plus one uh, greatsword, and then you uh, cranked. Um, I'm going to just use nice round numbers here, but maybe you cranked 16,000 gold pieces into it to make it a plus three equivalent item, which means it's plus one and flaming and whatever. But mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, you, you've cranked a bunch of stuff into it. Like, it's now that much harder for the DM to reward you with a new weapon. And it's sort of, um, it means there's going to be more loot that doesn't feel like loot for you. Like in the game, in, in third ed, you're really very unlikely to receive a weapon upgrade or a, a major like item slot upgrade from an adventure. After a certain point, you're very much more likely to be steadily pouring money into it by means of either a PC or NPC enchanter, um, who is, you know, your catalyst for moving your your item up its advancement track. Um, then you also have all those other item slots, um, so it's not just weapon and armor and maybe a shield and maybe you don't use uh, weapon or armor because you're a spellcaster but what you do all still have are the uh, ability score items um, your your gauntlets of ogre power your um, uh, cloak of charisma your headband of intellect and so on 
and at absolute minimum, you've got your class's preferred stat, and you're you're boosting that as fast as you can. And the fact that these all go in different item slots is itself this really weird, obscure area of class balance. Um, like, um, if you had something that, uh, like, I guess what I want to say is, uh, glove and gauntlet items that aren't gauntlets of ogre power or gloves of dexterity are not going to be useful to, uh, fighters and rogues and most barbarians and paladins and so on, unless you switched over to the girdle of giant strength or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, this sounds like I've gotten really far afield from economy, but it really is all very tightly woven together into uh, an edifice that it's really hard to do any other way at the table because there are so many connected pieces of it. Uh, but anyway, uh, those those ability score items uh, have plus two, plus four, and plus six states, and you need to be advancing them uh, just to keep up. Uh, it's another just really big part of play. And the fact that spellcasters don't have a weapon equivalent item and a lot of spellcasters don't have an armor equivalent item just means that things are really super different for them and their whole expectations of play and the items they're going to care about are really, really different and um, might come in a less progressive way and much more a, um, sort of single burst of item, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and man, I, I realize I've been hammering on this for ever and ever now, but another of the weird things about the economy of third edition um, that winds up really mattering is that natural healing is so slow because the game knows that you're just going to go out and buy a wand of cure light wounds. And you're going to use that to heal up to full between encounters. And so now because you can know the value of one charge and a wand of cure light wounds, well, like now you have some idea of the dead minimum budget that you need to bring in just to keep adventuring because mm -hmm. You have a cost for adventuring now, um, right? I'm sure you can do that with spells. Don't do that. Use the wand. Save your spells for something like better. <laughs> um, and using your spells during combat is great, but if you've got the time, um, after about first level, it is just better in every possible way to be using a wand to maintain your hit points. And so that's another part of the game's economy that is um, something you don't 
maybe recognize is that you do have some system mastery under your belt. And once you pick up on that trick, it really changes your experience of the game. And I hesitate to say for the better. Um, mm-hmm. So like the, the throughput here on the DMG is that, again, it's all incredibly tightly interlinked into uh, a coherent experience that isn't necessarily um, going to be everyone's favorite experience. And it's one where the, the mechanics and gameplay are really just leaving the narrative behind. Um, the narrative of money and treasure is, is substantially eroded, and the economy of this adventuring work um, like, is very much in the forefront uh, without sort of necessarily feeling grounded. I don't know if maybe ground is not the word I mean. It is so much about well, magic is part of your everyday life as an adventure. So I get what you're saying, uh, and that that's true of the DMG uh, of the core books, right? And and of the way that the game ends up playing out because of that magic item progression thing. But I think it was realized later. And so they tried to introduce new supplements that provided opportunities to do other things with your money. Right. Like the stronghold builders guidebook. Yeah. So let's talk about the stronghold builders guidebook for a second. Yeah, for sure. So it, it basically gives instructions for building a stronghold and that stronghold can be anything from a, a, a mansion, a, a small private cottage uh, to a, a small dungeon, a huge castle, a large dungeon, all, all of these various different things. And what they do is they, they have this, this sort of uh, process that you're supposed to follow to build a stronghold. And, um, Basically, that what type of stronghold that you want to build has a size rating, and that size rating is rated in what they call stronghold spaces. And that's really just a sort of abstract way of talking about basically how much room that stronghold takes up, but in, includes it's it's like volume, not not just linear measurement of oh, this is you know. It's, you know, the, the outside walls are 200 feet long. It's not that. It's it's the entire sort of space, right? In other words, if you choose to build a certain type of stronghold, you have to fill that space. You have to figure out what's filling that space. And so then you basically have that many spaces to fill, and then you follow this sort of procedure and um, it tells you, you know, how much money you might be able to get from a from a lord who is who is granting you uh, the right to to build the stronghold, or how much money you might have to raise on your own to build the stronghold. Um, and then it has a huge list of components uh, with their size. Now that's size in stronghold space, right? So the sizes aren't in feet or yards or anything in the real world, it's in stronghold spaces. So for example, uh, barracks takes up one stronghold space, costs 400 gold pieces, right? 
Um, right. A, lu- a luxury bedroom, on the other hand, would t- take up two stronghold spaces, costs 25,000 gold pieces, and you have a prerequisite of having to already employ a valet for <laughs> whoever the lord is, presumably, that's going to, uh, you know, have that as their bedroom. Uh, so right. that's the sort of thing that it has. It also has, you know, laboratories and studies. And if you have a tavern in in the stronghold, and uh, if there's any shops in there, and are there docks there? Is it on the water? And is there a library? And you know, it has all of these um, prerequisites and costs, and it tells you how much space is taken up. So if you purchased a stronghold that only had five spaces, uh, you can't put uh, two libraries and three stables and four bedrooms and an auditorium in it because because that would take up too much stronghold space, and you don't have a big stronghold. Um, so it it tries to make it very sort of easy. Um, it includes pictures and diagrams and uh, descriptions of all of the individual pieces. Uh, for you know the things I mentioned, and it talks about you know why in some cases why it's rated a certain stronghold size, and you know this, that, and the other. And then it has a bunch of adjustments uh, depending on the type of land that you're in and height and depth adjustments to cost and uh, staff costs. And, you know, if if you're building uh, a military base, that that has a different set of expectations and the difference between interior walls and exterior walls. And, I mean, it gets really nitty-gritty. Um down to the what type of wall materials are you using and how, what's the thickness of the walls yep, and you, in, you know i mean it's it's glorious right, <laughs> right? For, like, for, it's it's glorious if you are that member of your your table mm-hmm. that wants to just visualize every 5 foot square of wall and floor and arched ceiling and wants to talk about every candelabra and the enchantment on that candelabra, and the monthly budget in candles in that candelabra, mm-hmm. and the monthly budget in magical candles in that candelabra, like, right. like my God, there is a book for you, my friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or if you're the DM and you're building the evil temple for oh. your big bad, the culmination of the campaign. Okay, you have guidelines <laughs> that are, you know, right? Uh, and it, it, you know, is it this includes- how you want to use that, Sam? This, is it? This, it, well, uh, here's why I say that because it includes this wall augmentation table that is awesome and horrific at the same time, right? Uh, you can put an incendiary veil on the walls, uh, and that costs 60,000 gold pieces. It provides concealment, and then if uh, an intruder happens to try to impinge into it it burns them because of course it's incendiary so it bursts into flames um you can put an unholy guarding on uh, an exterior wall uh and uh, that protects evil creatures within the stronghold that costs fifty thousand gold pieces um you know, you can put uh, a wood bane on the the walls, which prevents wood from approaching. So anyone carrying anything wooden, like a siege machine, cannot approach. Or a uh, and wearing it, armor. Right, right. Well, a thief with a ten foot pole. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, but you get the idea, right? Uh, um, it, it's this is very inspirational for me. Not that I would necessarily use these numbers or whatnot, and I never did in the third edition days, even though I have this book. Right. Um, but I understand. 
I understand the I understand the 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 draw of the book. So the other danger of the book is the PCs saying, you know what, we only got our uh, wealth by level allotted amount of treasure out of this out of this stupid dungeon. You know what we're gonna do? <laughs> we're gonna take it over. No, we're going to strip mine this. Oh, <laughs> yes, you could do that too. And if you just uh, remove all the secret doors and sell them, they're worth 300 gold pieces a piece. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that incendiary wall, it's incendiary curtain, right? That sucker will is priced to move. Yes. Right? If we even <laughs> right. got 10% of its value, yeah. yes, right. let's do yeah. it. Right? And that's <laughs> horrible. That's horrible. Yeah. Like never do that yeah. because yeah. You, you don't want to turn every single horrible challenge you've thought to throw at the PCs into money in their pocket. Right. Sometimes yeah. you just yeah. want to throw a horrible challenge at them without mm-hmm. skewing the wealth curve. Sure. Right. And and to be fair, they also include you know the the idea of oh here's the typical staff you would have and here's how much you would have to pay them monthly and here's the benefit they provide to you if you hire them and you know um, yeah I I mean but then there's this list of magic items why is there a list of magic items oh is it, is extras. It- Extras differ from components in that they don't take up stronghold spaces and they don't represent a mandatory or assumed element of the stronghold. So it's basically uh, some, you know, magic item fodder to to put in there. Well, and there's Um, there's so many magic items that are simply non-portable cool stuff, right? And don't get me wrong, some of them are amazing. Like there's the um, the oh. Uh, what is it, Sarcophagus of Resurrection? That sounds exactly like something out of Stargate, and I am so here for it. Right. Right. Well, um, here's the thing. Uh, on on this list is the Well of Many Worlds. All right. Now yeah. we're talking. So, yeah. It's by the way, it costs eighty two thousand gold pieces. You can have it and a robe of eyes, and a staff of earth and stone, and uh, Nolzer's marvelous pigments. And uh, mirror of life trapping for a mere oh, and the mattock of the titans for a mere two hundred and fifty thousand gold pieces. Can I get that with a, a thirty year fixed? <laughs> uh, fifteen fifteen year. A fifteen year fixed. 15 what? Year. Uh, yes, yes. Mm, I'm not sure you're uh, going to live that long. Sorry. <laughs> uh, well, you're right. I'm you not going to live that long. I might as well go ahead and get an arm, right? Uh, you you are heck? an adventurer. <laughs> you, <laughs> well, you might not live that long. Uh, I think I'm a villain in this story, Sam. <laughs> oh, are you the villain? I didn't realize. Sorry. <laughs> but like, just just being at, at a place of um, of costing out the dungeon mm-hmm. is just this. I cannot but stare in shock. But I love the fact, like a, a perverse part of my soul is completely enchanted with the idea of opening up my uh, my box set of Ruins of Undermountain mm-hmm. and pricing out the levels. Oh, Lord. Just to oh. find out how much money Halaster oh. Black Cloak would have had to spend in 3rd edition rules to build, right. let's say, just the first level 
of Undermountain because I'm a monster. Like, it, uh, it would be so spectacularly much money. Yeah. And like, I'm not going anywhere with that except that it's right. a really funny exercise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like, you start counting up the square footage on that legendarily huge level one map. Like, <laughs> and that level one map is the same level one map that they used. They used it in second edition. Uh-huh. They used it in the third edition Return to Undermountain book. Yes, they did. They used it in the fourth edition Undermountain book, and uh-huh. they used it in the fifth edition Undermountain book. They used it's a small the piece of it in, in um, yes, in, uh, but it's Mad Mage, yeah. But it's the same one. It's the same map every time. Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't want to tell you. I recognized it at first glance when I opened up Mad Mage because, right, right. like, yeah, I, I never could have considered running Rids of Undermountain in Second Ed. Like, right, I, I was completely stymied by staring at it, but. Like I knew the map like the back of my hand. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not complaining that they use the same one. I'm saying it's fantastic. It's, that it's amazing, the same right? One. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing that they used the same one for the for twenty years, <laughs> for thirty years, right? The same map, which is, I mean, name another product that they've used for the same map, but, they, but yet that they've redone for four editions. I assume I, I, that I uh, Castle Ravenloft is not, but have they, reused they in that re- way? But they haven't done it, it, redone it in every edition. There was no fourth edition Castle Ravenloft, wasn't there? There was no, wasn't there? No third. I guess there was a return. Was there a return to Castle Ravenloft? Oh expedition man, I have no idea. Castle Ravenloft? No, that was Expedition to Castle Greyhawk. I don't think there was a a, a Ravenloft in third edition. We are so far off topic. This is amazing. There was first, there was first and second. Ah, that's why our listeners listen to us. It was, <laughs> it was first and second, right? First was the f- very first Ravenloft I six, and yeah. then there was uh, the box sets from second edition, and then yep. third and fourth didn't do any Ravenloft, and then fifth did Ravenloft, and they used they did use the same castle. Um. No, no, no. In, in October 2006, Wizards of the Coast released an updated, uh, updated and expanded version of the original module for Dungeons & Dragons 3.5. It's a 226-page hardcover book entitled Expedition to Castle Ravenloft. Oh, so I, so, oh, I was thinking that was... There God must bless be a your Wikipedia page. There's also a Greyhawk, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. Expedition to the Ruins of Greyhawk, yeah. Yeah, the whole Expedition series, right. Okay. Um, I just never had that Ravenloft one. That's why I don't remember it. Excellent. Well, cool. Yep. Okay. Uh, designed so, to be yeah. played as a mini campaign lasting about 20 game sessions, much longer yeah. than the original module. So, okay. So that's two Ravenloft and Undermountain, the first, the first floor of Undermountain, at least. And yep. So, <laughs> anything else? I don't, I can't. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got you one. Tomb of Horrors, son. Oh, well, yeah. All right. Well, yes, but the, the dumb tricks in that haven't even changed, right? <laughs> like I, I personally that's own, because they still work. 
<laughs> for for values of yeah sure like I, I personally own somewhere a first edition and then the second edition um, Return of the Tomb of Horrors yeah with like like box set well mm-hmm. because that sorry because that includes the first edition one right um, right and then I know there's. Uh, there's later ones, and that yeah. Is there is did they do it in third edition? I know there's a fourth edition. I, I refuse to believe they didn't. Let's put it that way. Because <laughs> um, the the fourth edition had a weird thing because the um the they had the hardcover book, but they also had a um a D and D encounters DMs version that I have of the Tomb of Horrors. Uh, so they actually did two different versions in fourth edition. They did the hardcover, which doesn't follow the original mod, uh, module, and then they did the sort of softcover DM rewards version, which does follow the original module. There you go. Um, but I don't know what they did in third edition because, uh, as I said earlier, I didn't really, I, I was not part of third edition from the beginning, so I don't have as good a memory about. The release yep. dates of, of products and this the, updated the version was designed for use of the Dungeons and Dragons 3.5 rules. There it is, uh, Halloween mm-hmm. 2005. Yep, absolutely. Okay. There was a 3.5 version, um, and then um, in 2010, Wizard of the Coast released two adventures bearing the Tomb of Horror's name. One is a hardcover super adventure written by R.M. Marmel and Scott Fitzgerald Gray. Blah 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 blah. And then second two before is a conversion and updated the original module fourth edition rules. Yep. Yep. That that sucker just keeps on coming back. <laughs> yeah. And and then of course there's yawning portal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Alright, so <laughs> what more do you have to say about economies in in third edition? Because oh, Lord. we're we're starting to run long. We're gonna we're <laughs> gonna <think>? not <laughs> Um So I mean I think that's really the main of it. I don't I don't think there's gonna be any other huge developments of of the idea here. Um I think the take home message is uh the difference in economy is one more step in that in that transition from the the sort of um, what we would call the the older games and the more modern editions. Yeah, um, it, um, it really was a break, um, and there were signs of it in two E, but I think three E really really was a break in well the, in, in how how the game is designed. Right, like second edition uh, flirted repeatedly. With player creation of magic items, that was mm-hmm. something they wanted to be mm-hmm. a potential part of the game. Right. If, if that's something you wanted to really work at and pursue, and it was a central element of play in third, uh, you could have a game where it didn't happen, where there was no downtime for that kind of thing. But that was certainly not the expected standard, and um, I mean. Eliminating downtime in a third ed game does as many weird things to the game as uh, cutting treasure in half uh, mm-hmm. for the same reasons. Uh, right. And uh, so, so my takeaway is that the 
economy of third ed is this really tightly integrated thing and um, a huge amount of game balance rests on its shoulders more so than in second, certainly. And uh, to some degree more so even than in first. I mean, in first, the worst that happens is that you advance too fast. Right. right? But that has hard limits, such as you can't gain more than one level from a single adventure. So if I dump half a million gold on the party, well, they get their level, and then that's it. Mm -hmm. Unless they find a way to lose that treasure and then re-seize it ad infinitum. And uh, God bless them, I guess. Who knows? Um, Well, that's one way to get them to chase a villain, that's for sure. (laughs) Right? And and in third, um, like... You, if you got a huge influx of gold and you you poured it into your magic items, well, like you might have a bit of advantage for a good long while, and correcting that might be really hard. And there are all these constraints on what it's okay to give out and when, and um, things got pretty wacky pretty fast if you played in games as I did where the GM wanted to be actively generous with magic items. Um, things got skewed, and um, it got weird. It, you wouldn't think it would matter as much as it does, but you know, here we are. Um, right. So, 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 right. Like, just to recapitulate uh, again, um, the economy is the game in third. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no separation between the economy of third and the rest of gameplay. Um, it isn't just a piece of things. It's like, gold pieces are, are as important to your character as experience points for the same reason, maybe more so. That's That's my takeaway. My final thought is, I don't think that's going to happen again, even in fourth. I think that fourth is going to put bounds on it in different ways, such that even having fantastic amounts of wealth isn't quite as explosive as it can be in third. Um, okay. Well, I, I think I think that's a good place to stop then. I don't have as many... Um, thoughtful comments to make about third because I just didn't play it as much as I played other editions and I wasn't there at the beginning. So I didn't, I didn't develop enough mastery to really see the problems uh, or maybe problems is too strong a word, but to really see that as the driving force of the game, because I just never played as much. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Excellent. So, so Sam, my man, Yes. where can people find you online? Ah, you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel, and you can find me on uh, the internet uh, on RPGmusings.com, or you can check out my streamed game, which is about every two weeks. That's called D&D Brief. It's on twitch.tv slash don't split the podcast. So please check that out. What about you, sir? Where can people find you? 
I write my own blog at brandastoddard.com. I also write for tribality.com. Um, my Twitter is at brandastoddard, and I have a Patreon that is brandastoddard. Excellent. All right. Well, with that, I think we will say goodbye and uh, stay tuned for the next episode, which will be about the economies in fourth edition. And I think that's going to be short enough, crossing my fingers, to get us to fifth edition as well. I think we could probably do it. I think so too. Especially if we stay on task and don't do 20 (laughs) minutes on Tomb of Horrors. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Good day. We know it's not going to happen. Whatever. It's fine. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.